If you've got your Bible, let's go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 39. You know you are a Christian when you preach from the Old Testament. So let's start right now. We're in Genesis chapter 39. And check this out. If you don't have your Bible, uh, we'll actually help you out, and we'll put it right there on the screen. This is what it says. Uh, now, Joseph, so we're talking about a character in the Old Testament who is, is, uh, is pretty famous just in regular life. They actually had a Broadway play about him. Uh, anybody ever heard of Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat? Okay. This is uh, no one? Okay. Okay. Uh, let me try that spot again. Yeah, this is about a guy named Joseph. There's a Broadway play about him, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. Anybody ever seen it before? Oh, you heard of it before? Yeah, there we go. Okay. Y'all ain't talking today, but that'll change. Okay. So let's read. We're talking about this guy named Joseph. This is later on in his life after he's already lost his really cool coat, and this is where we pick up. Uh, it says, now Joseph was well-built and handsome. Now, here's the thing. This is the infallible, unattainable, but, but suspiciously correct at every single turn word of God, right? How fine do you have to be for the Bible to call you fine? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, like, so, like, if the Bible says you're bad, you're, like, bad. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I'm confused. How's the Lord going to be like, he was well built? <laughs> he had traps of steel. His biceps were like, boom. And he was handsome. Here's the a, here's a truth. I really could have just started in verse 7, but I just wanted to put that out. I thought that was funny. The Bible is hilarious to me sometimes. And it says in verse 7, And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph. Well, when you're biblically fine, that's what happens. And she said, Come to bed with me, okay? And then this is what happens. But he refused. Joseph said, No, chick, you thirsty, right? (laughs) With me in charge, he told her, My master does not concern himself with a thing. Even in the entire house, he doesn't concern himself with anything. Everything he owns, he has entrusted in my care but one thing. What was the one thing? No one is greater. It also says this. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? This is what happens. And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her near her. One day he went out and he went into the house to attend his du- to his duties and none of the household servants were inside. She caught him by the cloak, this chick, and said, come to bed with me. She's extra thirsty. I mean, one time it's like, that's pitiful. Second time it's like, yo, chill out. You know? But he left his cloak in her hand. So she had grabbed a hold of this homie, right? Like, you know you find if chicks are grabbing your jacket, you're like, oh, stop. You know? And he ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called out to her household service and said, look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. So now the story has flipped. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak inside and ran outside. She kept his cloak beside her until her master came home and said this. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave that you brought us came to make sport of me, but as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. Let's stop there. Let's stop there. I want to I preach tonight on the idea that you have a choice when it comes to choosing God's way or culture's way. 
I want to preach tonight on this idea of what is your response when it comes to how you deal with temptation. This tonight is going to be dealing with sin 101, okay? And if you're taking notes, here is the title, Run. Just run. That's all, you, that's all you need to write. Run. Let's pray. God, we love you so much. We uh, understand that uh, tonight is about you. We give you honor. We give you glory. And in this moment, God, we just ask that you anoint this time. Speak through me. Use me. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, Father. Take this time. Use it. It's in your name we pray. And everybody said. Amen. Amen. So uh, I've had an eventful weekend, okay? It's been kind of, t- anybody saw all the floods that were happening in Texas? Okay, it's, it's been nuts. So uh, what if I told you I was there, okay? Uh, I was in Texas all weekend. Uh, it was crazy. It felt like walking dead. I saw like cars floating. Like we're driving on I-10 and I'm watching cars float. I'm watching houses with doors open and water. It was, it was just an insane scene for us to be in. Now, what if I told you that I willingly went to Houston knowing all this? Right? You'd have to think, there's a, Pastor Jerry, there's got to be a good reason. There was. I was buying a new truck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's, I wish that wasn't the truth, but that was true. My dad, for the past like five months, has been sowing seeds into my mind about buying his 2014 F-150 Lariat on some K2 rims and some Terra Grappler tire. I mean, he's just been selling me on this idea. It's blacked out. The rims are blacked out. The interior is nice leather. It, cool thing about the truck. Everybody's car has seat warmers, right? That's cool. That's normal. But the thing about seat warmers is I don't have trouble heating my butt up, right? Like, do something different. This truck has seat coolers, bro. Like, check. It it puts air conditioning. I mean, it's just beautiful. You just need to know, okay? It's incredible. (laughs) But it was was a truck that I looked at, and when I saw it, I was like, man. And my dad gave it it to me for about $10,000 under uh, market value. He said, he wa- first of all, he wanted me to sell my Harley. Uh, yes, don't let the skinny jeans fool you. I had a Harley Davidson. Uh, but he was like, yo, if you sell your bike, your car, and, and give me a couple of more Gs, I'll just give you the truck. It's yours. Here you go, son. Have, have at it. And I was like, this is beautiful. So when he told me that, I freaked out. But fast forward five months, I'm still stuck not being able to sell my car and waiting on a little bit more money. Finally, last week, right before view, it was nuts. Right before view, somebody walked up to me and handed me all the cash for my car and said, I'll take it today. And I was like, truck time. Because I don't know why when I get happy, I just start freestyling, but it just be like that sometimes. But the guy hands me the cash, and I said, Dad, I'm coming tonight. I got to preach. I'm coming tomorrow. I got to work. I'm coming the next day, though. Let's do this. So the next day, this is when I decided to go to Houston. I need somebody to ride with me. So I chose the one person who would know the Texas terrain better than anybody else out there. My only Hispanic friend who also plays keys, Jacob Etwell. But he was like, yo, um, let's go to Texas and let's do this thing right. He was so pumped. I was so pumped. I was like, man, this is going to be awesome. So we drive to Texas, and everything is great. As a matter of fact, it's blue skies. We were like, what storm? Like, rain? What? We drive. We're even in Texas for a while. We were like, man, this trip is going to go off without a hitch. And then the rain started to come. We looked at each other. We're like, no big deal. The whole time I'm driving, my parents are calling me in three-minute intervals at least 14 times going, you need to turn around. You need to turn around. You need to turn around. And you know when you grown, you just, you grown. You know what I'm talking about? Like, <laughs> it's like, mom, you're not my mom anymore. We're like friends now. You know what I'm saying? I call you mom out of a courtesy, but 
keep going, and I'm gonna call you Jocelyn real quick. You know what I'm talking about? Please don't show my mom this podcast. <laughs> I ain't playing with you. So anyway, she get, like, like, she's like, turn around. I don't keep driving into Houston. When we reach Beaumont, everything falls apart. We look to our right and to our left. Everything is flooded. It's underwater. You can't get through it. And we're in a Corolla. We ain't got the truck yet. <laughs> At one point, we're going through this puddle, and both me and Jacob just about hold hands and don't say a word. <laughs> this is what it felt like for three minutes. Got to the edge of the puddle. Oh, my goodness. (sighs) And you know how, like, when you do something crazy with your friends, the first time you do it, it's like after it's like, oh, that was crazy, dog. This is nuts. This trip is going to be insane. Let's go get a truck. But then the second time, you're like, oh, my God, I'm about to die. We went through three puddles, y'all. A drive that was supposed to take us six hours took us 14. We're stuck behind flood and traffic. But here's the crazy thing. We stop at a hotel. Perfect place to turn around. We could just go straight back on I-10. We think to ourselves, man, we could turn around. But at the same time, there's a truck waiting. Let's keep going. We, guys, it got so bad. We had to stop at a Best Western attached to a truck stop. You know things were in dire straits if you're black and you stop at a Best Western truck stop. Let me tell you, let me tell you how the lady described it to me at the front desk. She said, it's rustic modern. The better word was busted, bro. (laughs) So we keep driving into Houston. And every time I got got closer and closer to Houston, I was like, this is not a good idea. 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 Finally, we get to Houston, get to my dad's truck. I got it. Everything's awesome. I give him the cash. It's great. But then we decide to leave an hour and a half after we got there. And guys, on the way back, we stayed in traffic for 15 hours. 15 hours. When we finally did get back home, which was at 12 noon the next day, so we had been up for about 30 hours straight. After we got back home, my, my friend was like, my other friend was like, yo, was it worth it, bro? And he's thinking I'm going to be like, yeah. I was like, bro, I lost $360, three days off my life, and my favorite Hispanic friend. Like, <laughs> no, I should have just waited a week. But the whole time, nobody could tell me anything. I was just like, I'm going to keep going. I, I got to get closer to this thing that I really love. I feel like sometimes in life, we do something similar. I feel like oftentimes we're met with situations and opportunities to do something that looks incredible, but we know it's a situation we shouldn't be a part of. But our response is not to walk the other way. As a matter of fact, our response is to walk straight towards the flood. See, the mistake Christians often make is not correctly identifying the situations that lie in front of us. So when temptation happens, we think everything's all good. You know those people when it comes to like following Jesus, the first question they ask you is like, hey, so like, can I still hang out with my old friends? Like drinking, it's not like that bad. What if I did one drink, not two drinks, or two drinks, not, what if it was like four drinks, but not like five drinks? I'm not getting crazy, right? I can still talk to that girl I met on Snapchat, right? I can still DM that dude. All of these different things. We, we really want, the, the question most Christians ask is, how close is too close? Let me tell you something, young people. Anywhere close is too close. Stop trying to figure out where the line is and just run towards life. Why do so many Christians, if this is life and this is death, they're like, well, how, how close can I get to death? Without, with it still being fun, but I still know Jesus, you know. Maybe I could just, like, lean over the line. I'm not even going to step. I'm just going to lean. 
how does that make sense? It doesn't. See, I think often in Christianity, we are really, really great at teaching on what sin is. Don't have sex before marriage. Don't, don't drink and get super drunk. Don't, all these different, we're great at saying, don't do that. You're wrong for that. Don't do that. You messed up here. But so rarely do I hear people actually preach and teach on how to biblically avoid such situations. We teach on what they are, but we rarely teach on how to avoid them. Tonight, I want to teach you how to avoid those type of situations. See, in 2 Timothy, and I love this, we're, we're going to support this all night with Scripture because I want you to see what, what, what Joseph's response was, actually. The Bible says what? They says he encountered this woman. What's the first thing that he did? He ran, right? He, the, the only appropriate response to sin is to run away. The Bible says to flee. I love what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. It literally says, hey, all you people flee from lustful thoughts. Flee from lustful, youthful passions and run towards righteousness. Basically, it says when, when there's temptation in your wake, don't stand there hoping you don't get wet. Get away. Flee. Run. Too close is too close. I love what it says in Matthew chapter 26, verse 41. It says, keep watch and praying. Why? That you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Why is that important? Because the, the spirit wants you to live and wants you to live this Jesus thing and do it right. But the flesh is so weak. If you get near anything, the flesh all of a sudden takes over. And you're in a situation where you wake up and you go, I wasn't even supposed to be here. If this story we just read about Joseph when he fled so fast he left his jacket behind is the right example of how to deal with sin, I want to give you an example of the wrong idea of how to deal with sin. It's maybe one of the most uh, famous uh, dealings with temptation in the entire Bible. It's 2 Samuel chapter 11. Check this out. This is what it says. Uh, so we use two really, really famous biblical characters, right? One was Joseph in a technical dream coat. This one is David and Goliath. Okay, anybody remember David and Goliath? If you don't, let me tell you, little dude beats the big dude, okay? Um, this is after he had beat the giant, and this is an important part of, of David's life. It says, in the springtime at war, or in the springtime, the kings go off to war. David, who beat Goliath, sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed, some word I can't read, and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. First mistake, David wasn't where he was supposed to be. So often when we deal with sin, we think it's the external forces, our friends. are, But so often, we're not where we're supposed to be. How many of y'all know that it's, it's way easier to, to get caught up in something you're not supposed to get caught up in when it's late at night and nobody's around? How many, how many times have you skipped class and then ended up doing something you weren't supposed to do? Or, or, or how many times have you missed view and then Wednesday night just got a little too crazy? You know what I'm talking about? Ain't nobody said yes, sir, on that one, right? They're like, hey, I don't, how, does, how does he even know about that? That's crazy. <laughs> so first mistake, David's not in the place that he was supposed to be. He remained in Jerusalem when he was supposed to be at war. One evening, one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. And then from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. Now, I don't know how those cities were crafted, but that's kind of a weird thing. You're just like, oh, I'm going to go for some sky rooftop type chilling. Oh! Okay, that's great. You're taking a shower. This is interesting. But somehow he was able to have access to this. But when he saw her bathing, the Bible doesn't say he, he looked away and ran. What does it say? He had enough time to notice that the woman was very beautiful. Let me see what it says next. 
And then David sent someone out to find her. So he took enough time to know she was beautiful. And then it moved to another step. Because what you need to know about David in this passage of scripture is he's married and she's married. He had enough time to be where he wasn't supposed to be and then look at what he wasn't supposed to look at. And then he went a step further and sent somebody to him. How many of you know when you make one mistake, it's almost like a domino? It's like, yo, I made this one mistake. It's like, yeah, I Snapchatted this dude, and it, was, it got a little too far. Next thing you know, y'all are like married in Vegas in two weeks. You know what I'm saying? Like, how did I get here? <laughs> oh, often when it comes to mistakes, we don't just make one. It's a pattern. So he sent somebody. Then the man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So at that point, hey, it's just eye service. He messed up with, with his eyes. He could repent and, and stay away from this. Why? Because his servant told him, yo, this this girl is married. You, you can't do this, king. And then what happens? It says, then David sent messengers to get her again. She came to him, and he slept with her. Then she went home. The woman conceived and then sent a word to David saying, I'm pregnant. See, David had a major slip in his character. One, because he wasn't where he was supposed to be. But more importantly, because he should have been running, but instead he was looking. He should have been turning face when it came to sin, but instead he stayed and lingered a little bit. See, what you need to know tonight, David slipped and had a slip in his character because he was willing to stay. Joseph had success when it came to temptation because he was willing to run. First point tonight, if you're taking notes, running always costs less than staying. Running always costs less than staying. See, most new believers or people that recently started to like really rededicate their life and get on this right track with God uh, or Christians that have been living uh, kind of inside out, kind of not, also trying to figure some things out, but then recently made a decision, you know, I'm going to kick things up a notch. I'm really going to follow Jesus. Most of them have something in common. It's this. Most of them see something that went on in their life, particularly their old life before they met Jesus. They still see it in even though it, maybe it shouldn't be, it's kind of attractive. You ever, you ever dealt with that? You ever like came to Jesus and you know Thursday nights don't need to be your night downtown. But at the same time, like if I could like be a Christian and still party like we used to when I was back in sorority, I mean, that wouldn't be so bad, right? It's still a little bit attractive. Those nights are kind of wild, right? The stories are nuts. My old life still kind of seems a tad bit Attractive, or, or Christians that have been following Jesus for a while. You know that this is true. Christians that grew up in Sunday school, know the Lord, amen, blessed and highly favored. You know those type of Christians? You know how oftentimes if you're one of these people, sin, or at least the people that are living in sin, sin seem like they're having a whole lot more fun than we are. And then, even though we're not meaning to, sin starts to become attractive. If they can make it look so fun... Why is my life so miserable? So what happens is we, became, we begin to make decisions that keep us proximate to things that are going to cause us death. We start thinking, you know what, that, that's, that seems a little bit more attractive. So if I'm just a little, remember what I just said about crossing the line? We're like, I don't have to go over the line. See, the problem with those pagans is that they go too far. <laughs> they go too far. They're way over here. It's like, I'm not going to do cocaine or anything. I'm just going to, like, have a few drinks. <laughs> See, I'm normal. But what begins to happen is what turned to one drink or what turned to one partner 
looks like 50 in two years. And if you don't believe me, what you're not understanding is a human truth. One mistake makes it easier to make more. See, Joseph's success was wrapped up in his ability to get extreme about the things that the Bible calls sin. Young people, we are in a generation that feels like everything is just good and that works and this works and as long as you believe in God. No, that's, where is that in the Bible? Where is it as long as you believe in God? Well, it, it is some places. Whosoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But that's not what I mean. <laughs> what we really are talking about is all I have to do is know that he exists. No, 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 no. Following Jesus is so much more than head knowledge. It's connected to your heart, but it's lived out through your actions. When you see sin, what is your response? Because let me tell you God's response. He's appalled. He's not tolerant. So why do we allow it to get so close to us without making decisions that look the other way? See, what we have to begin to understand is that the only appropriate response to sin is fleeing. The only, I don't know what you've learned in Bible study, but the only re- appropriate response to sin is to flee. And, and I'll have people bring this up to me, especially people that are just out of, like, their old life but want to get closer to Jesus. They say, say stuff like, well, I can't lose all my old friends. Who's going to give Jesus to them? Right? You've heard that. Hang out with your old friends, but not in situations that could cause you to stumble. Why? Are, and most, this is crazy. Most people are so worried about their old life when they get a new one. I'm not telling you to leave all your, your friends that are still sitting behind. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is do not cause yourself to slip back into death because you want to save somebody's life. It was never your responsibility anyway. God is going to use you to affect these people. But what you have to begin to realize is that he doesn't use you when you're still weak and battling with some stuff. And then you want to go get close to the one thing that pulled you down the, the, the farthest. That's not how it works. See, the truth is, when you understand that, that running always costs you less than staying, you'll begin to understand one of the most important fundamental tools in fighting sin. That's will. You setting up discipline for yourself, saying, anytime I encounter this, I know to go the other way. But let me give you some truth tonight. I did say, so I said, running always costs you less than staying. But here's something I also need you to understand. While it costs less than staying, I never said it didn't cost you anything. I never said that it was going to be easy or, or that it was going to be free. As a matter of fact, if this story with Joseph taught us anything, the truth we have to realize from this passage of Scripture is that running, as a matter of fact, will, will most definitely cost you something. In Joseph's case, it cost him first his cloak. The Bible made it sure you saw that. It cost him his jacket, the proof that he was there. But then, we didn't keep reading on this part, But there's other verses where it says that Joseph, because of this moment, because of this lady lying on him, was thrown into jail. The master ripped everything from him and threw him into jail. So it cost him his jacket and it cost him everything. Running from sin always costs you something. And for some of us, it may be be some momentary pleasure, right? Whoever said, I don't know who said this, but whoever said that sin just feels wrong was a lie. (laughs) 
Sometimes, and can we just be honest about this? We're in church, but still, like, let's not lie. You don't have to act like you, holy moly, guacamole. Let's just be real for a second. At first, sin feels great, right? It's so much easier not to live for Jesus and have to worry about a conscience when you could just do you. Sin feels great at first. But the truth is, the sacrifice you make for choosing death will always cost you your life. At first, yeah, yeah, maybe it looks attractive, but it's not. And when you decide to choose God's way over your way, what you'll begin to understand is that it does cost you something. Again, sometimes it's pleasure. Maybe it's that momentary high you were really looking forward to. But, but for some of us, we've lost friends over becoming Christians. Anybody else with me? Sometimes it's going to cost you your job. Sometimes it may cost you. The Bible says it could even cost you family. Sometimes it's a reputation. Oftentimes we lose our group of friends because when we lose our group of friends because when we start living for Jesus and they're not, they think we're judging them or looking down on them. Or that's not what's happening, but that's always what's happening when the enemy is speaking through them. They don't see the goodness. They see that you're doing something. All of a sudden, you're working out your life and you're trying to get better. Well, are you saying that our lives are bad? It's like, no, I'm just doing who I'm, I'm just being who God has called me to be. You need to understand that this is something that happens. It will cost you something. For some people, I've seen this oftentimes, for some people, it's just a little bit too much for them to take. They walk back into their old life because they miss their old friends. That's happened so many times. They decide to take a step that, that encroaches upon their integrity because they didn't want to lose something. Christianity is, is a free gift, young people. It's a free gift, but it will cost you everything. I love what it says in Luke chapter 14, verse 33. It says this. It says, this is Jesus talking. He says, so you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. And that's not a metaphor. You can't read that. And, well, God was really like talking about spiritually and like, he was talking about like your soul. You got to give up. No, he was talking about everything. Your house is not yours anymore. Your car is not yours anymore. Your clothes aren't yours anymore. What are they? Instruments of ministry. But also, and maybe more importantly, you give up your will to want to work it out for yourself and you start working for a new boss. See, most people want this life of Christianity as an accessory to their old life. But the truth about Christianity, it was never meant to be an accessory. It was always supposed to be what you had instead of your old life. It's not in addition to. It's instead of. This Jesus thing is not something that you can just have and, 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 and still have everything else that you wanted. This is so massive. You need to catch this. You cannot become a disciple of Christ and it not cost you everything. It's free, but it'll cost you everything. I love that Joseph's story showed us how important it was to follow God's plan for our life. It shows us that no matter what, no matter if you're going to lose your job, you're standing, no matter if people are going to accuse you, no matter if you're going to get thrown in jail, no matter if you're going to possibly get murdered, you still choose God's way. But we don't have that type of resolve anymore in our culture because Jesus is just a fad. And Instagram posts we're willing to repost. Guys, we're not going to change the world being half in Christians. The Bible spells it out clearly for you. It will cost you. Be willing to pay it because the sacrifice is always worth the outcome.
Understand this. Let's look at the end of the story. I'm almost finished. It's in Genesis chapter 39, verse 20 through 23. This is what it says. It says, Joseph's master took him, put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Check this out, though. This is so beautiful. It said, but while Jesus was there in the prison, sorry, while Joseph was there in the prison, Jesus was there too, right? (laughs) The Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison. And he was made responsible for all that was done there. So this homie just got blamed for something he never did. Thrown into prison. And within no time, God elevated him to this spot. Where now the prison that he was in, he's in charge of. (laughs) And pretty soon, in just a few more years, he'll be elevated again to the second in command over the most powerful nation at the time, which was Egypt. See, Most people don't understand what's happening when you go through temptations. Most people don't understand what's happening when God gives you an opportunity to resist or to give into sin. See, I think oftentimes that when we have the opportunity to choose between Jesus' way and the things that we used to do, in our mind, even if we don't say this out loud to our church friends, in our mind we're thinking there's no way God's way is going to be as awesome as the way I was living before. Because here's what happened. You don't come to Jesus after the first time of partying or after the first time of getting in a bad relationship. You come to Jesus when? When that bad relationship has run, run, run its course, after partying has destroyed your grades. You don't think about it when you're at the height of it. Everything's gravy. If you're this type of person like me, like I was in college, you come to church when things are on the brink of disaster. You know what I'm talking about? It's like everything's falling apart. I have no friends anymore. I can't even wake up on time for class. That last hangover was so bad. I just can't anymore with this. I'm just like, oh, just can't. And then it's like, oh, church. <laughs> That's really how we think it works. It's like, no. But yes. See, the truth is, we really think in our, in our head that the Jesus way is not nearly as fun and not nearly as great of an, an, an experience as culture's way. But the truth is, what you need to know is that God has so many more plans for you that don't involve walking in things that continually harm you. And, and, and the truth is, when you go through these temptations to walk back into that life or, or go back to the, your old life, what you need to understand is that all of those things are a test. All of those things are a test. What if I told you that that every choice you had to make, no matter how big or small, that forced you to choose between Jesus' way and your own way, would eventually turn out to be a test? Would eventually turn out to be a moment where you would either grow or stay? And Keith, you can go ahead and come back up. The Bible says that the race is given to the swift The race is not given to the swift or the strong, but the race is given to the one that endures until the end. So what you need to know is that endurance is the key. You need to make it until the end. But what if I told you, what if I told you that there are specific moments that may matter more than most? 
There are specific moments in your life where, where all of the endurance of whether or not you're going to finish the race will be contingent upon this decision and how you respond in this situation. What if I told you those moments often look like temptation? I love what it says in James chapter 2, verse 22. It says, count it all joy. Sorry, James chapter 1, verse 2. It says, count it all joy, brethren, when you endure trials of various kinds. Why? Because they're going to produce endurance. Endurance is the key. But here's what you need to know about endurance. It, it's about moments. Not the length of the run. It's about moments. There's this thing that science uh, researchers have put out for a long time. And it has to do with the way that you uh, train for marathons, right? So, uh, first of all, if you, like, are one of those weird people that get up in the morning and run, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. Um, if you're one of those weirder people that, like, come home at night and run, even worse, right? You should be eating and hanging out, right? Just weird people. So, um, but I just, I don't like running at all. I just, like, I'm going to go off on a tangent here. But the thing is, when you just, like, go out and jog, what are you actually doing? It's not like you're trying to get anywhere. It's not transportation. You're just like, ah. Anyway, I hate running. Um, but research came out about how marathon runners train uh, for the marathon. See, if it made sense to me. Like, if you wanted to be a good marathon runner, you just run a lot of miles, right? Like, that makes sense. Like, if you're trying to build up endurance, what should you do? Run longer. It's like jump out there, start with one mile, two miles, three miles, 20 miles. This is crazy. I'm a marathon runner, right? But the truth is, researchers have found that oftentimes the best way to train for endurance running is not running endurance races. Actually, they, they do this special training called cardiorespiratory endurance training. And what that is is it looks like all the worst thing, things about fitness, jumping jacks, horrible, just horrible, burpees, sin and death himself, <laughs> jump rope at, quick, at high speeds and turnover quick intervals. The reason why is because when you do those exercises, there, there's something scientific that happens that I don't really know because I was a business major. But basically, it allows your muscles and your heart to all work together in sync to, to run off the oxygen-rich blood that you need to keep your muscles from fatiguing. So it was crazy. It was like the best way to train for long distances is really quick, hard, short spurts where you have to pass an individual test to know, hey, man, I'm, I'm getting better. I'm growing what if I told you that the very sin that you continue to be unable to resist, what if I told you that the very friend group that keeps trying to pull you down, what if I told you that the thing that's holding you down most and the thing that you think about, is your, that's your greatest sin and every time you have to battle it, you lose. What if I told you that that temptation wasn't trying to kill you, but it was that, it was, it was that God was testing you to make sure that you were ready to fulfill the calling that he placed on your life? What if I told you that those tests matter because God is trying to develop in you endurance to be the integrity-filled believer he's called you to be? What if I told you that God is using those tests so he could use you? See, the truth is so often we look at temptation as another opportunity to fail. But the truth is temptation's never been a stumbling block. It's always been a leg up. It's always been an opportunity for God to be able to trust you more and more. 
But if as Christians we continue to allow sin to be so ordinary, oh, you sin, I forgive you, I accept you. Yes, I forgive you and I accept you, but you're not living in life. We need some real Christians that are finally going to get true about this. Here's what you know, need to know, and this is my last point. When it comes to temptation, your response is a test. Your response is a test. And if you don't leave here with anything else, you need to leave here with this. Your response to sin, it's going to determine the trajectory of your walk with Jesus. And check this out, young people. It's not supposed to be easy. That's half the issue. We think that because it's hard, it must not be God. Lies. Because it's hard, I know it's God. Yo, pay attention to how our world is drifting off into looking more and more like darkness. We are supposed to be the ones with light. We can't do this if we look like darkness too. I hear this all the time. People will say things about living for Jesus and and what they'll kind of say is that when I'm walking with God, I, I, so I go through these times when I can't hear him. You ever been through that? It's like I've been trying to hear God. I've been, trying to, I've been trying to love on Jesus. I've been trying to come to church, but just nothing is speaking to me. Oftentimes the truth is God is speaking. He never stops. We're just listening to the enemy a little bit more. And we walk into temptation and we fall every single time when God has always been there so you can have a test that leads you to your destiny. Every head bowed, every eye closed.